Up until age 18, I never ingested drugs. It all started with weed from a friend, then moved on to coke, crack, spice, stimulants, opiates, benzos, and psychedelics. I have done it all except PCP and ketamine. The drug abuse has been extremely severe and uncontrollable, resulting in major kidney, liver, and intestine damage now at age 26. Managing my opiate addiction of six years was the worst, but I got on Suboxone in year five or six. When I couldn't tolerate the withdrawals from sub after a year of weaning and attempting to stop six times, I quit my job and went on vacation to Florida on August 5th, 2018, and did not get back home until August 19th with my girlfriend who does not use. Before we hopped in the car for the 700 mile drive south, I already had a plan to get high and I hid it from my girl. It was my secret which did not last. My plug and old buddy in Florida could give me pure blue crystal shards for 80 a gram. Very good quality compared to the crap I see here in North Carolina. I wrestled with the idea but decided wrong. My addicted brain convinced me that since I was on vacation I may as well enjoy myself and get high. I deserved it and my mind said yes to it. By using meth I can kick the suboxone and stop my opiate problem for good. This plan worked and backfired horribly. Meth did overpower the horrible feelings and sensations of the withdrawal. Meth is so strong it seems to overpower just about 95% of all drugs. This I knew would work and help me, or so I thought. Then I became a meth addict in return upon stopping opiates. Here's my story on the gradual loss of my sanity which took a mere 14 days of foolish abuse, redosing, and mixing drugs with meth. It all started with buying a whole gram on August 8th, three days after we got to Florida. I tried for three days to kick subs, but then I caved into my sinister plan of replacing one addiction for another. My plug came by at 12.30pm and sold me the G for $80. We went into the bedroom and prepared my first dose of this cunning poison. I was so excited that my hands started sweating. He prepared a small line for me and I railed it, about a half point from the first bag and I instantly loved it. My dealer at the time said to be careful and do not ever smoke it as for you will become a fiend. I did not listen because I was all about the forbidden fruits of life. Just hearing the dangers made me want it more. I exclusively snorted the first bag and did not use any other ROA. I stayed awake for three days straight on the first bag. Already then, I forgot what sleeping and eating were like. My use was already out of control. Basic functions like sleeping, hygiene, and family became an afterthought. I was so high and spun from the first batch, I locked myself away from the world because I could not act normal and looked filthy and crazy. After I snorted and ate the whole gram, I ran out and crashed for one day. After that, I bought the second gram when I wasn't feeling good from withdrawal. The second gram lasted another three days. I found oral dosing under the tongue to be better than most ROAs. I ran out and crashed hard for two days in bed, super depressed. The comedowns were getting worse. At this point, I already lost major weight. I looked anorexic and sickly from the lack of sleeping every day and barely eating any food or drinking liquids. I was stuck on a path to utter annihilation, but I caved again. On the third gram purchase, I pushed another binge. Three binges in 14 days. I slept not even five of those days total. My tolerance was also going up because the third gram lasted only two days. 
It seemed like a total waste of dope smoking it, with less bioavailability and easily forgetting how much I was doing. I opened the bag and broke up the giant rock so I can load the pipe. First few times smoking it, I did it wrong, which frustrated me, but I eventually learned. Once I perfected fine art of smoking and twirling the glass, I became infatuated with it. It became my life. Nothing else mattered to me except the ice and glass. I would say smoking crack was horribly fiendish, but out of all of my experiences, smoking meth had the worst pull and grip on my mind. Nothing in life came close to this addiction and I was hooked. My girl, little puppy, and even myself did not matter until the dope ran out and busted the pipe. I feared for myself of losing it all. I did not realize at the time that I was also losing my mental sanity and perceptions of reality. Smoking ice hit my brain instantly and hard. However, sometimes it had a delayed reaction and would creep up on me. On the third bag, I finished half of it smoking constantly. The pipe was constantly in my hand going through three lighters a day. At this point, my hearing was going haywire from the mental abuse of using meth like an idiot. I heard voices in the wall speaking to me and whispering, talking shit about me and how much of a junkie loser I was. I hallucinated metal songs, old men speaking to each other, and dogs barking when there was none in the household. I heard intense ringing of the ears which changed pitch constantly. My ears were popping and the audio hallucinations kept getting worse. I should have stopped smoking the pipe, and I did. I thought it was a good idea to take a bong rip of pot to relax. I loaded a huge cone and blasted the entire bowl in one hit. It was more weed than I have ever inhaled. My lungs could not feel the smoke at all. I held it in for 20 seconds and exploded the smoke out, coughing my lungs up. All of a sudden, after 2.5 grams of meth over the course of two weeks, sleep deprivation on and off, and the mixture of a mild psychedelic, cannabis, my mind snapped for the first time in my life. I entered psychosis and it was the most terrifying experience I've ever had. My mind became my own worst enemy. It got so bad I considered suicide as an option. It got progressively worse over the course of four hours. I walked out of my girlfriend's bedroom at 3.30am with eerie paranoia of immense danger around me. I was standing in the hallway and heard banging noises outside. I went to the front door to check on the cars. I peered through the glass and saw five cops outside standing looking at the door. One of the cops I saw his face peeking straight through the glass looking into my face directly. I backed away from the window and he held up a pistol to the glass and made a threatening gesture with a sinister smile. I backed away from the front door and turned off all the lights, grabbed a butcher knife and ran into the bathroom. The house was dead silent. All of a sudden I heard radio chatter on a police radio. They were talking outside and I heard them through three walls in the middle of a household. They said they were breaking in shortly to the suspected meth house. I hid in the bathroom, terrified for who knows how long. After a short while, I walked out of the bedroom into the living room with the knife in my hand, walking on my tippy toes into the darkness. I thought they could hear my footsteps on the soft carpet, so I was moving very slow from the small bathroom where I felt safe. They disappeared and I was freaking out more now, thinking they went to the back of the house to enter inside. It was dead silent again. I heard an intense buzzing sound in the walls around me suddenly. 
The room morphed and breathed with psychedelia, and I heard sounds of electricity buzzing, hard to explain the sound. I gripped the massive knife tight, hands sweating so much, beads were dripping onto the blade. It was too quiet and I anticipated trouble, eyes wide open and tweaked into a delusional, homicidal state. I walked back into the living room and turned a lamp on to see. I looked around and felt okay, but then seconds later I suddenly heard an extremely realistic, vivid, and terrifying sound. I heard a window breaking in the kitchen 15 feet away. It sounded incredibly real. The window sounded like it was kicked in with a shoe. I heard the glass fall and hit the tile floor in the kitchen, then heard a man grunt as he pulled himself through the window. I heard feet hit the floor and glass crunch under his body weight. My face dropped and my hand gripped the knife so hard I had bruises on my hand. I ran back in the bathroom and turned off the light with the door cracked slightly. I thought at this point someone was going to die and it was up to me to save everyone in the house sleeping soundly. I hid in the bathroom and heard two men in the house talking to each other, saying to grab this item to steal. The other man said he was going back towards the bedrooms. He had to get through me as for the bathroom was right in the path of where he was headed. I heard footsteps silently and carefully approaching around the corner from the kitchen where the window was busted in. I was sweating profusely, shaking, my heart dropped, and the knife felt like an extension of my own body. I knew this was it, rather I die from a home invasion or I murder for the first time. I could not exit the bathroom for fear I was going to get shot and killed. I held my breath and crunched down in the darkness, peering out in the hall with the door cracked ready to pounce. I stayed in the bathroom concealed in the darkness for quite some time. I exited the bathroom and peered around a few corners, squat walking to make my body target smaller so I did not get shot suddenly. It took me 50 minutes to make sure the tiny house was clear, and in reality, it was. Nothing happened at all. I hallucinated a home invasion at 3.30 a.m. It was completely real to me, but it did not end there. I woke up my girlfriend and made her check the house. She said I was tweaking too hard. I did not believe her. I hit the pipe more and started convulsing. My chest and head had severe pains from the high blood pressure and I could not stop moving, breathing extremely fast. I considered the hospital but I couldn't do it again. I had no weed and could not calm down. I decided to go out for a walk to breathe fresh air. Huge mistake. I entered the realm of hell with the shadow people for the first time. It was not a friendly experience. It was 4.30 a.m. I carefully exited the house. I was in a full, thick body sweat, eyes blown. I had hypothermia, was starving, and dehydrated. I was so spun, all I had on was my shorts and a shirt, no shoes. I started walking a block and was walking very quickly. I made it 500 feet and turned a corner. The hallucinations went from audio to visual. As I turned left to another road, I saw dozens of black cats and dogs running across the street in front of me. A man peered out from behind a bush. I couldn't tell if it was real due to the psychosis intensifying and my mental state turned for the worse due to seeing that one shadow man appearing. I became hostile and more paranoid. I ended up getting lost, despite only wanting to walk a few blocks. I knew the neighborhood well but could not think clearly. I lost track of time and location and was increasingly desperate to get home. 
It seemed darker than usual outside. I looked at my phone and the screen was so bright I had to put it away. With waves on my phone, I could not articulate a thought to help me and gave up. Walking in the middle of the road at 5.30am, suddenly lights and the sound of a car were approaching from behind. I saw red, green, and white vivid lights on the ground in front of my body, getting brighter as the vehicle approached me and the sound of a car engine running. My back was turned, it did not dare turn around for fear of cops. The car stopped feet behind me and I stopped walking, gripping the huge kitchen knife in my waistband. I heard three doors open and close to the car. A man called out my name and said to turn around. I held my concealed knife and I turned and nothing was there. I could not believe how crazy the hallucinations were becoming, but it was not over. It got even worse. The most terrifying episode I ever imagined or experienced. It seemed all too real and I couldn't handle the paranoia anymore. I dropped the knife and was too paranoid from cops showing up. After walking around in a circle for another 30 minutes getting more lost, I finally found a street nearby the house. I found my way and was only 2,000 feet from the front door. My shirt was completely drenched in sweat. I took it off and wrung it out, sweat spilling onto the street. I left my shirt off and carried it in hand. I started speed walking faster. I turned a corner and was so close to home. This is when the most intense fear of my life got triggered. It gave me PTSD, I believe, and I will never forget what I saw and the intense fear. I will never forget, scarred into my brain forever from sheer terror. It was like Satan raped my mind and soul, a sense of pure evil and hostility. I was high, but I was panicking, fearful, and desperate to escape my mind. I just could not do it. All of a sudden, I heard doors to homes opening and closing. The homes were behind me only, not in front of the path I was on to the house. I turned around to see and froze from fear. Black shadow people calmly walked out of their homes one at a time, one person from each house. After each one came out, they stood on their driveways. They faced me and did not speak or move, only glared. They only glared with a hostile, evil feel to each one of them. I started walking in reverse facing them. The panic exploded into full, incredibly horrific fear. The shadow people started walking towards me, and behind them, dozens more started running out of each house. The shadow people I saw had bright red, demonic eyes and evil-spirited feeling. Then I noticed the ones running had two massive knives in each of their hands, the same knife I had from before. They all started chasing, running full sprint. I locked eyes with one of them before I started running full speed down the street, only a few hundred feet from home. I tossed my shirt onto the grass and screamed. I screamed in pure terror and I was running faster than I ever ran in my life. I felt like I was running 30 miles per hour. While extremely stimmed, I could have had a heart attack or stroke. I did not care. Fight or flight mode mixed with psychosis made me believe I was going to be brutally murdered and sent to hell. My body was sweating so much I couldn't even see. My eyes were covered in sweat droplets, but I did not stop running. I was so scared I cried while sprinting, thinking this was it. I am going to die and I cannot escape this nightmare. I wanted to commit suicide to end the mental anguish. If I had a gun, I would have. 
but my desire to live overcame me and I made it to the front door in less than a minute since I was close nearby. I slammed the door behind me and the shadow people ran up. Dozens of them covered the front lawn and driveway. They stood motionless as I looked through the glass and I saw a sea of glowing red, sinister eyes staring me down. Just as I was looking at them, they all disappeared into the air in the form of a black wispy smoke, except one. The one singular shadow person walked straight up to the window, stared me straight in the eyes from inches away with just a thin window frame blocking him from me. The shadow then got even closer and came through the glass and into me. All of a sudden, I got down on my hands and knees and could not breathe. I felt my body being entered or exited from an external force I could not describe even to this day. After a few minutes, I got up and the psychosis lessened. The paranoia remained and I did not sleep that night. I stayed in the house and did not dare to leave again. I did not redose anything and just stopped. I was too afraid. To this day, four months later, I have an intense fear of darkness, walking around neighborhoods at night, no matter how safe. I have an aversion to knives and I'm shut in even more so than before. I fear that the panic and terror I endured gave me lasting mental scars and irrational fears. If I decide to use meth now, I get psychosis from not even using .25 with just meth alone. Psychosis appears to become easier to achieve as time goes on. Abstinence from drugs is the only thing that helps, and life is truly better without meth. Mixing large amounts of it with cannabis appears to trigger psychosis or make it much worse if it's already occurring. As fun as it is and amazing as it was, it was never worth putting in my body. This is the tale of the single lowest point in my existence. Although after a lot of thought on the matter, I've decided to share my experience with inhalants, mainly gasoline huffing. The following takes place over several months, so bear with me. I was 15 at the time, had just started a new school after being dismissed from my last one for drug paraphernalia. I'd started smoking pot the previous summer, but before starting at my new school, my dealer had moved away after nearly getting busted by the cops while I was there and fucked about face, but that's an experience for another day. So I was generally feeling quite down, plus on top of that I had just begun using Valium recreationally a few months before and was starting to fiend for it. Well needless to say, I was on a slippery slope and when I started school I found it was hard to find others I could relate to. Although I had a few close friends outside of school, I was beginning to feel more and more isolated. The experience. Although I had very few friends to speak of, during my time at the new school, I had met another dude with similar interests, though in retrospect, I wouldn't consider them a friend as I stopped talking to them long ago. After four to five weeks of sobriety, I was sitting at home, bored and desperate to catch a buzz and with no cannabis around, I was keen to try anything. This was when B suggested that we try huffing gas. I had tried butane before, but at the time, never even knew you can get high off of gas. Holy shit, you can get fucked up off of something I've had in my garage this whole time? I replied. Yeah, man, I thought you would know that, replied B. So without much more forethought, we were up in the garage, crouched over my dad's large red boat gas tank. Worst decision I've made, and probably ever will. I unscrewed the large cap on the tank, and peering inside I asked B what the best way to do it was, to 
which he answered, just stick your nose in there and take the deepest breaths you can as quick as you can. I asked him to show me what he meant, and before I had finished the sentence, he had his nose in there huffing away. After what seemed like 20 or so tokes, he stood up with a very dazed look on his face, saying, Fuck, you gotta try this, man. Well, seeing how inebriated B appeared to look, I immediately put my nose into the huge can and began to huff. The first few burned my nose so bad I had to stop mid-huff and take my nose out just to stop the burning. But soon the effects began to take hold, and by the time I had taken my 10th huff, I began to experience auditory hallucinations. These infamous noises are known as the ding-dings in my circle of friends. Other people who have tried inhalants will know what I mean. By the 20th hit, these ding-dings had increased to such an intensity, it felt almost deafening. And as I stood up, a huge wave of the strange warm fuzziness hit me. It felt not unlike my previous experience with butane, although to a much greater degree with gas. As the high progressed, it began to take on more of a drunk quality, almost like scalling a six-pack, but with a slight rush to it. At this point, B and I were stumbling around my garden like lunatics, laughing at the absurdity of it all. Things in my peripheral vision began to shift, and I began to see what I can only explain as slight heat-shimmering type visuals, like when you see heat coming off the road on a hot day. The delirium we were in soon began to taper off after this. I'd say the whole experience was only 10 minutes in all, including after effects. It was definitely not worth it if I had known what was coming later in life, but at the depths of depression, I was just stoked that I had found something that got me high. I didn't try gas again till the following weekend when after another miserable week at school, I found myself fiending for that rush again. This may sound ridiculous, and in hindsight, I can see how stupid it was, but at the time, it seemed like all logical thought just went out the window. I either didn't think it would do me any harm, or I just didn't care, but either way, I abused gasoline, and to a lesser extent, butane, occasionally, three to four times a month, for the next three months, until one night, after a long huffing session, I opened the garage door and began to walk down the garden path in a benzene-induced stupor, strung out in my own little world, and I failed to notice my dad standing on the deck outside his room. He was very anti-drug at the time, and we regularly had arguments over my habitual cannabis use when I was younger. He tried to talk to me, but I didn't hear for some reason. I had already walked around the corner when he followed me and asked what I was doing in the garage this late. I was so shocked to see him and trying to maintain balance in my head spinning, I simply replied, having a ciggy. He told me to go to bed because it was Sunday and I had to get up for school, so I obliged and went to bed, but I knew I was in no mood for sleeping. I lay awake, my mind still racing from the close encounter, I thought a lot that night and stayed awake to enjoy the beautiful crimson sunrise. And as it came up over the islands in the distance, the cool autumn air soothed my ravaged lungs. And it was then that I sat and decided there were much more important things in life. I don't know entirely what caused it, but I made a conscious choice that dawn and have never used inhalants again since that night. A choice which I believe may very well have saved my life. The Consequence about six months after my epiphany, I was expelled from school. After a friend and I were caught smoking cannabis behind horticulture block, which wasn't really a big deal to me, still young and dumb. I just hated school. Anyway, so fast forward after eight months, after several odd jobs with several different temp agencies, I had finally found a job I enjoyed, was good at, and had plenty of new hookups. Things were really starting to look up for me, and I was just proud to have finally got my life back on track. I was making money and in good health. Everything was choice. 
then it happened. I had been starting to develop back problems which had slowly been increasing in intensity over the last few days. Just shrugging it off, I had assured myself it was due to all the heavy lifting I had been doing at work, but deep inside I knew something wasn't right. Plus, it was getting worse and really beginning to impact my work. After taking the day off, the pain was getting really unbearable. My dad decided to call an ambulance to take me to a hospital as I had begun to develop a weird rash and I couldn't even walk to the car. Soon enough, I was in the back of the ambulance, sucking back nitrous oxide and having a merry old time, totally oblivious to what was right around the corner. When I arrived at the hospital, I immediately had a nurse walk up and start asking me questions about my symptoms. She asked to look at my rash and took a blood sample. Then I was wheeled into the ward like a lamb to the slaughter. After about an hour or so of waiting, we saw the curtain open, and as soon as I saw the concerned look on the nurse's face, I knew my life was about to change forever. Your white cell count appears to be abnormally low. What do you think could be causing this? I asked. At this point, it appears you may have leukemia. I froze. It felt as though time stopped. The nurse continued talking, but I was just tuned out. A thousand different scenarios ran through my head and I perished every time. Eventually, the nurse walked out and the walls crumbled in on me. I couldn't breathe. Eventually, my mother's sobbing eventually snapped me out of suspended animation. I was so sure I was going to die, I began to prepare my mind for the cold embrace. I knew what leukemia was. Well, at least I thought I did at the time. And at that moment, I felt as though I literally had months left. I was still sobbing in my mother's arms when the nurse appeared again and informed my father, I was inconsolable, that they needed a bone marrow sample to fully diagnose which type of leukemia I had. At this point, I had no idea there were more than one type of leukemia. So they heavily sedated me, took the sample, and then I was wheeled into the children's oncology ward. I was told they have the highest survival rate, and that's where I spent the single most terrifying night of my life. I lay there contemplating my own mortality at the tender age of 16. I felt as though I was on the brink of death. My life had run its course and it was my time to go. Not something anyone should have to even think about at that age. Needless to say, I didn't sleep a wink that night, despite several high doses of lorazepam and a continuous patient-controlled morphine drip, which I eventually had confiscated because I kept hammering the button. The next morning brought rays of shimmering hope into the dark, abysmal world I'd been brooding in all night. Just before noon, my oncologist came in and explained that the particular strain of leukemia I had is called ALL, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, quite easily curable and has a very high survival rate. It felt as though several tons were lifted from my shoulders. I was overjoyed. It was like I'd been given a second chance to live, and that's the way I still see it to this day. What I was feeling was indescribable. I had gone from preparing myself for death to just jumping for joy just to be alive. My oncologist spent several hours explaining my treatment phases to me, that I would have to have a three-year-long course of chemotherapy to prevent it from coming back. This daunted me, but I was so stoked that I was going to live that I would have crawled a mile over broken glass to get rid of it. She also explained that if I had left it much longer, I would be facing a more malignant diagnosis and that usually my age group, 16 and up, didn't fare too well with other types of leukemia. I felt so lucky that I had an easily treatable type, but also a deep empathy and sorrow for those others, one of which I would meet during the two weeks I initially spent in the ward. 
Then I asked the million dollar question what could have caused it. She explained they weren't entirely sure, but asked if I had been swimming near mangroves. I said no. And the very next question was, have you spent much time around solvent fumes at work? I froze. It suddenly appeared so obvious to me. No, not really, I replied. Why's that? Is that known to cause it? She explained that certain solvents such as toluene and as I recently found out, benzene causes leukemia. I clicked and it suddenly made sense to me. I had brought it on myself. Although this might appear a bit controversial, here are the facts so you can make your own conclusion. From Wikipedia, benzene causes leukemia and is associated with other blood cancers and precancers of the blood. As a gasoline additive, benzene increases the octane rating and reduces knocking. The conclusion. So here I am, alive, well, active, and almost two years into my treatment. I lost all my hair a few months after starting chemo and it's now grown back very thick and curly, albeit a bit slowly. I am now real keen to get back into work and have been job seeking the past few months. Being diagnosed with leukemia has been the scariest and most intense time of my life. It has changed me in a deep profound way as I have gone from abusing my body and mind, making my parents' life a living hell, and just generally taking the great life I have for granted, and now to enjoying every day to its absolute fullest, respecting myself and others, and most importantly, I now know what it truly means to be alive. Personally, I feel this was a classic case of karma. I didn't give a flying fuck about myself or anyone else and I took it all for granted. So the universe just dealt me a mean dose of cause and effect to kick my ass into gear. It's been quite a learning curve. Though thinking back on it, I wouldn't have swapped my experience for the world because it has gave me something priceless, a deep respect for life, not just my own, but all those around me. As they say, what doesn't kill you can only make you stronger. No, this was not a suicide attempt. I did this just to experience the trip, and God, part of me regrets it so much. My HPPD after this is worse than ever, and I still feel sluggish and quite depressed. I'm 15 years old, I'm 5 foot 10, and I weigh 130 pounds. Without further ado, here it is. I live with my grandfather after my parents kicked me out. However, this night, they were letting me stay with them. I took the pills around 7pm and didn't feel much for the first 10 minutes. I wrote 1350 milligrams DPH on my arm to remember what I had taken. Then, it hit me, much harder than any of my previous experiences. The come up felt like it was the peak of some of my other trips. My body felt heavy and my stomach started to hurt. I just sat on my phone telling people what I had done. Most people didn't even know what it was. Now, my first real hallucinations, spiders. Not just the tiny black spiders I see on 700 milligrams. These were real, huge. They looked like brown recluse, except they had bright and vibrant patterns, almost beautiful in a sense. At this point, the whole room was fuzzy, like my HPPD times five, and I could see strange shapes forming inside the walls, like there were creatures inside of them. I began to hear my dead friend's voice calling my name and knew his screams weren't real. This is where I decided to experience the real horror. I dimmed the lights and turned on some music, partially to mask the noise of my friend, Wolf Girl by Machine Girl, my favorite to listen to on DPH. 
I remember the sound of the music felt more intense than ever and almost scared me. The creatures inside the walls, now large snakes and tracers, moved and danced to the sound of the beat. I stared at them for about 10 minutes and at this point, I was having quite fun. Then, I felt spiders crawling all over me and then saw a black mamba snake climb across my body. I felt almost incapacitated, like I could barely control my body. I tried to move around to get some water and hit my head hard at least three times. I barely made it back to the room I was staying in and had quite the headache now from hitting my head so many times. Of course, I tried to turn on the TV, which I couldn't, and hit my head again on the desk. I decided just to go back to laying down, try to focus on the visuals. Then my grandpa came in the room. I didn't know he was coming over, but apparently, he was. Turns out this is real, and he thinks my behavior was because of HPPD and a lack of sleep. He tried to speak to me, but he kept disappearing and reappearing. I couldn't make a coherent response to anything he said. My grandpa immediately recognized my symptoms as he had almost taken me to the hospital 950 milligrams before. He said I needed water and to come upstairs. I don't even remember what I said as at this point I was completely incoherent. But I tried to go upstairs. I remember the room downstairs felt off. Everything was so blurry. I saw faces of people I used to know floating in see-through with angry looks on their face. I felt so horrible and my head hurt so bad. I was definitely caught this time. As I swayed my body upstairs, I had no motor control whatsoever and began hitting the walls and knocking things over around me. I fell while walking up the stairs, hit my head on the hard floor, and I began to bleed. I went upstairs and, thank God, my grandpa was gone, but my mom was there. I told her I was really tired and I hit my head, and she went to get me a band-aid. My grandpa had left me a water bottle. I tried to grab it, but my hand was empty. Nothing was there. Turns out, the water bottle was a few inches away from where I grabbed it. I hit the bottle and it spilled. My mom came back, clueless as usual, and thank God she helped me bandage me up and said to just get some rest. She would take care of the spill. I sometimes miss her and I feel like I should have thanked her for this. I wasn't even at the peak of the trip yet, but I saw a package at the door. For me? I hadn't ordered any package, but it had my name on it, and it was labeled Tattoo Kit all over it. Ecstatic, I somehow made it downstairs into the room where I was going to sleep. I opened it, and although it had been labeled Tattoo Kit and was really small, it contained crystal meth from Breaking Bad, DMT, weed, and an electric scooter. I took the drugs and put them in my safe where I keep my substances. Thank God I managed to keep it hidden from my parents. The room I was in was a mess, obviously, and I was covered in bruises and blood. At this point, I wasn't even hallucinating spiders. It was a whole new world of darkness. The walls were sinking in, everything echoed, and I didn't even know what day it was. I laid down after supposedly stashing my new drugs in my small safe. They turned out to be toys for my little brother. I looked around the room, seeing the usual spiders. This time, they were black widows crawling on my face. I wasn't that phased and decided I was hungry. God, I am so stupid. But I got up to go over to the next room and get food. This is where Ariel truly began. When I exited the room I was supposed to spend the night in, the main downstairs room wasn't that anymore. It was my ex-best friend's house. 
As I wandered through his supposed stashes of weed, nicotine, and shrooms, more of my brother's toys, I saw his house was infested with centipedes. I began to run. I believe I was actually crawling and just flinging my body around my house, this time injuring my leg and probably making a commotion. Then he appeared. Dude, what the fuck? You aren't supposed to be here. Then, he just vanished into thin air. Very strange. I decided to exit his house and walk back home, but as I was about to crawl upstairs, I encountered a strange entity. It was what I imagined to be a ghost. It didn't have a face or anything. It was almost this fog-like creature, almost see-through and filled with strange colors. I felt a dark connection to the entity and almost comforted by its presence. I got closer, fascinated by this dark, pulsing entity. I reached my hand out and began to touch it. It felt like cotton candy almost, but my hand could reach through it. But then, as I put my hand in more, I felt a horrible sting. I felt like it had burned, cut me, bit me, or whatever. Although I didn't see any wound, I definitely felt pain in my hand, almost like a decent-sized cut combined with a second-degree burn. Then I felt extremely dizzy and like I was going to pass out. Blue lights began flashing all over the place, shadow people darted around me, and my body felt so heavy but so light at the same time. This is where I believe I suffered my first seizure of the trip and blacked out. God knows when later, I woke up, but it wasn't the next day yet. I was again in a different place. It was back home at my grandpa's house in my new room, except something was very different. The room felt fake, like it wasn't my real room. The door would not open and almost all of my possessions were gone. I noticed a camera in the corner of my room. I was trapped. I remember I felt the most numb feeling I had ever felt before. I couldn't even read the writing on my arms. I felt as if I had lost everything. As I stood up, I still felt heavy and very dizzy. I tried to open my window, but it happened again. I had another seizure. Less visuals, but more incapacitating. At this point, I gave up and just lay there. I wondered what happened after death. I couldn't quite comprehend death, or life really. I probably should have died. Wonder why I didn't die years before this. I just lay there, my body so frozen but shaking at the same time, and eventually blacked out or fell asleep. Probably both. I woke up on the floor of the room I was staying in, covered in my own vomit. What the actual fuck? I had slept on my side. I could have died or been extremely injured multiple times in this experience. I was so hungover and tired, but I had the energy to clean up after myself. I don't remember much else of that day, but I kind of just sat around watching TV. My parents didn't even say anything, and I gave my brother his toys back. I decided to throw away the rest of my Benadryl, but part of me doubts I'm ever going to really quit. It's like a horror movie or true crime to me. So horrible and dark, I enjoy it. I wonder if this drug is going to kill me, or if the conditions I have from using it so much already have. I don't think this will be the last report, although I want it to be. Hopefully I can make it to 18 without using this drug, but I doubt it. Somewhere between 11 and 11.30 p.m. on a mid-April day in a small Midwest town, two guys named Terry, me, and Will, my friend, were sitting around playing video games and had no marijuana. 
That's when I pulled out about 7 grams of months old Datura Noxia seeds which were only known to me as moon lily variety at the time. These were from home plants of a relative to be passed to another until I had put them away and forgot about them. I don't remember how I came to learn that the moon lily was intoxicating because I didn't know its proper name for months after the experience. I assumed they were a variety of morning glory seeds only learning the truth after following up on experiences in the archives. Nothing at all happened after an initial test of a gram at most, so I figured it would be safe for me and Will to try 3.5 this night. So here Will and I are thinking, what have we got to lose? After all, LSD and mushrooms wears off within 8 to 12 hours. How bad can an organic flower be? We both ate 3.5 grams of sunflower tasting detura seeds each on an empty stomach. Pretty goddamn bad. Within 45 minutes and still expecting nothing, our vision began to fail like so many reports before this one. I thought that would be the worst of it, but not quite. Will decided he should go home a little after 12 to avoid coming home to angry, worried parents. As he walked out the door, I looked into his eyes and knew that we were in for something big. I should have stopped him then, but we've both taken hallucinogens enough that I felt like he could take care of himself. As soon as he left, I was on my computer and noticed I couldn't read it, much less stay concentrated on it. Again, like so many before, I found myself searching for dropped cigarettes, but they were burning through and sliding under the sheets. I could feel the burnt holes and heat coming off of them, feel the cigarette roll away from me under the sheets. And then it hit me that I never lit a cigarette, but I sure needed one. Forget that I was just thrashing around like a wild man for imaginary cigarettes. It was time for the real thing. I actually smoked the same amount as I normally do, 30 to 45 minutes apart, but I always felt like I had one in my hand. Many times my index, middle fingers, and thumb would meet as I spaced off and that would induce a frantic cigarette hunt. It was mostly happening in my left hand which I don't even smoke with. This is the aspect I am most curious about of all my experiences. It's so common, the explanation is probably very simple. At some time, I laid down to sleep it off. Big no-no. I'm guessing it was around 2am by this time. I never felt like I fell asleep. In fact, I sat right up and started using my computer at one point. I opened notepad.exe maybe by accident. Not really sure. What I was sure of though was that aliens were typing messages to me and replying in real time. The room looked disconnected and distorted with subtle colors like red, green, and yellow, and everything seemed liquid like as if I was in an out-of-body state, or at least how they make it appear on the soap opera flashbacks. I was visited by some friends, though I can only remember one person in particular, my girlfriend. I saw her sitting behind my oscillating fan staring at me, saying nothing. I started yelling at the top of my lungs, Why won't you talk to me? Just fucking talk to me! when I heard a knock at the door. It's my sister asking if I'm okay because they heard me talking in my room and I say I was just having a bad dream, which wasn't a complete lie. All it takes though is one look into my solar eclipse of a pupil and the story falls apart. She tells me it's 4am, which I have a hard time believing because in my mind, my friend had just left and I was listening to music and surfing the net, waiting for the seeds to kick in that never would. Never mind talking with aliens or hunting for dropped cigarettes. Never mind becoming blind as a bat or hardly being able to swallow whatever liquids I drank to alleviate the dehydration. I didn't have the constant urge to urinate, possibly because I'd been trained from so many late night trips to avoid leaving my parents' basement at all costs. 
but I did take one bathroom break which I took time out from to examine my pupils. That was just the reminder I needed to realize that I was fucked up and needed to avoid all contact. After my sister's concerned check-in in the bathroom break, there was another knock at the door. This time I told myself I was just paranoid and it was my imagination. After three or four knocks, there was no denying I was in deep shit. I answered it to see my mother's face, grim and threatening, with the question taking no time to jump from her lips. Are you on something? A million excuses filled my mind and I can't be sure, but the one that I believe popped out involved taking a few too many antidepressants. Not a bad choice as the label says it may cause hallucinations, delirium, dry mouth, and all the other symptoms I had. And she would know that working in a pharmacy. So I would be off the hook, able to go back to smoking my cigarettes in insanity land. Not quite yet. She wants me to go upstairs and talk, make sure I'm okay. Bad choice as I'm the farthest thing from okay. I found myself at the kitchen table near 5am, jumping from the most nonsensical topic to the next. A wonderful show for your family, I think not. I would stop mid-sentence and come back into consciousness and think how much of an idiot I was for allowing myself to run off the handle like that. And the look on their faces in that moment of clarity was enough to shock me back into rambling and incoherent gibberish mode. This cycle went on for 20 minutes as I tried to be normal and thought I was playing them like puppets. That is, until I puked up a belly full of tea and half-digested detura seats all over the kitchen table. I was filled with dread that my lie would be discovered then and there, but it wasn't time for that just yet. Somehow I managed to lay myself on the kitchen floor where I watched armies of half-cricket, half-roaches in awe as they marched in perfect strategic lines like you see in the Chinese military marches. I was also threatened with the possibility of visiting the emergency room, which between bug-gazing moments I peacefully protested. After the nightmarish scene upstairs, I was somehow allowed to retreat to my room, unsure and only half thinking of what trouble lay ahead. I just wanted to be in the safety of my room. Once in, I immediately calmed down to my average state of being, although still experiencing the loose cigarette phenomenon as well as periods of spacing out and dreaming while wide awake. There were no more panicky hallucinations though. My girlfriend showed up and told me something bad has happened and she wants to know what happened. I ask her what the problem is, and apparently, Will's mom was calling up friends to see what poison had been given to her son. I then start a short one-way conversation about my grandparents who she barely knows for no reason, until I snap back to reality and see the familiar shocked stare. That was when I realized how much trouble Will could be in. Through a friend, I learned that Will came home and began talking to imaginary friends. He was as blurred and blind as I was, if not more. It wasn't the incoherent gibberish or the psychotic look in his eyes that worried his family. It was the fact that he had been found eating carnation baby formula, and when asked what the hell he was doing, he replied, I'm eating McDonald's. Both of our vision was restored after a day of sleep and recovery, which surprised me reading all the reports here lasting four days or longer. I had to admit to my mother what I had really done, and it was humiliating, just like the time when I told her I had tried coke, speed, and basically everything else but H. This time, it was maybe even worse, because I undeniably lost control, and it was all over a natural legal plant. I have not eaten detour again and don't plan on it anytime soon. I did begin experimenting with smoking the fresh-picked leaves, flower, anther, and filament, and the results are much lighter. 
After less than a gram of flour material, lethargy sets in, known around here as Datura Stoned. Also, I have a bit of anxiety fearing another onslaught by this untamed plant. I have yet to experience drastic effects smoking Datura that I had while eating the seeds. Knowing what I know now about the plant, I regret ever taking it as I did. Very foolish, especially considering the drugs in it. Then I think of the experience and feel a strong desire to go through it again, because it is like no other drug. Yes, it is one unique ride, if for anything to have a better appreciation for the capacity of the mind and the potential to unlock some heavy subconscious ego-crushing insight. But the bottom line is to not do this alone, because reality becomes 100% subjective to a part of oneself that one may not know or even want to know. This is the closest thing to schizophrenia I could ever imagine. Knowing enough to hide the fact that I had taken psychotic drugs while completely forgetting that I was on them. Scary indeed. I do not feel I was in serious danger or becoming sick from the seeds. However, it was obviously an unsafe state of mind. One last word of caution. It has been over a year since I ate the seeds, but over time I have caught myself dreaming while still awake in bed, believing it is all just a dream. Like many others into lucid dreams, I always test the boundaries of unreality by doing things I couldn't get away with in the real world, like tearing my girlfriend's panties off with my teeth for example. Not a personal example in my case, but a very possible and potentially bad scenario if I'm not expected to act that way and if I'm not woken up in time. I have had these occurrences three to four times and never did before taking Datura, not even sleepwalking. I will be thinking it is okay to do this or that because I can just wake up or press reset like a video game when that's actually not true. That same feeling of stupidity I had between moments in and out of consciousness while on Datura is present after these rare experiences. I'm right now on day 5 of my horrific withdrawal from Flunitrazolam, and I'm only now able to even type anything on the PC. It was horrible, but rather quick. Today I only feel maybe slightly weird, barely noticeable, and I'm just glad I survived this. So to start off, my previous experience of benzo withdrawal was from clonazepam with alcohol, which was about twice as long as this one. About maybe two months ago, I made the stupid decision to buy some RC benzos online, including 250 milligrams of flunitrazolam. I soon ordered 500 milligrams more since I liked it more than the others. I've tried all common prescription benzos plus flualprazolam, clonazolam, and flunitrazolam, and the latter one is probably the most addictive benzo I've tried. It also has a potency comparable to LSD. 0.2 milligrams would feel like maybe as strong as 0.8 milligrams of Xanax. In the beginning, if I would dose any more than 0.2 milligrams, I would get horrible rebound anxiety about 5 hours after dosing when it was wearing off, so this is extremely powerful. However, I kept using it and I tried to stay safe by only taking another dose when I felt sober again, which was a huge mistake, since the benzo still isn't out of your system when you feel sober. So I did that a few weeks, maybe a month, during which time my tolerance would go up so much that towards the end, I would take maybe 0.8 to 1 milligram 2 to 3 times a day. It is the most pleasant benzo ever. It feels very similar to Xanax, but more euphoric and it lasted about twice as long. I also never blacked out on it, even when taking huge doses like 1 milligram. I would usually just feel extremely relaxed, happy, and very hungry on it, which caused me to gain about 4 kilograms during that month, but I probably lost these again during the withdrawal. 
However, over that month, I noticed that I would generally get more and more depressed. It seems like regular benzo use increases depression, since I felt that as well during the 35 days I was taking clonazepam. I would also use it when I was going anywhere, since it just made me feel more carefree and nice than any other benzo. During this time, I would notice that I get nauseous about 8-10 to 10 hours after dosing, which was probably already withdrawal. But my rude awakening came last Friday. So it was Friday evening and I was just lying in my bed feeling extremely depressed. After that, I would suddenly get some anxiety and it dawns on me. This is obviously withdrawal setting in. I was terrified since my finals were in about a month so I couldn't go to a clinic. I decided to not redose and just wait it out. Well, I dosed 200 micrograms out of fear I could get a seizure after which I took a shower to calm me somewhat down and then lie down in my bed, at which point the withdrawal was already pretty strong. The 200 micrograms, which would be a normal dose, did absolutely nothing. This was probably the worst night. Within the next few hours, my heart rate would rise to about 120. I'd get a strong tinnitus, my whole body would just feel like it was overheating, and I felt a strong head pressure. I started seeing crazy open and closed eye visual patterns, almost psychedelic-like patterns. I quickly took 3 grams of phenobut and 4 grams of GABA powder to reduce the risk of a seizure. While weighing it out, I noticed that my coordination was really bad and I just felt like I was underwater. Surprisingly, I had no tremors at all during the whole withdrawal, but my movements were rather jerky and uncoordinated. The scariest thing about benzo withdrawal is how it just always keeps changing. Sometimes I would get extremely hot and sweaty, then my heart would start racing. My tinnitus sounds would suddenly change and the withdrawal would get weaker and come back again in waves. Sometimes during that night I would feel pretty okay, other times I felt like I would get a seizure at any moment. I would keep my phone next to me thinking about if I should call an ambulance. When I was half asleep, thoughts about normal things would seem really distant and weird and I sometimes felt like I was leaving my body for maybe a few seconds. This terrified me because I read that these were signs that a seizure was about to happen, but I survived that night without one. I surprisingly was also able to sleep for maybe 2-3 to three hours during that night, but this sleep was filled with super vivid and terrifying dreams. I somehow survived to Saturday morning at which the withdrawal was probably at its peak. I just kept dosing 3 grams of phenobut every 8 hours just to prevent a seizure, but I wouldn't feel anything from the phenobut. I would try to listen to some sleep music, but music was way too loud and I would jump from any sound. Any music I would listen to would also sound extremely sad. I would also have slight audio hallucinations of people talking and sirens going off outside. I just tried to lie in bed in the middle, away from any hard objects, just in case I would get a seizure. Getting up and waking felt extremely weird and uncomfortable. My body felt really stiff and my skin on my feet would almost hurt when I was walking, almost like I had a sunburn. I would often shower for 40 minutes just so that the sensation of the water and the sound would cover up the terrifying effects of the withdrawal, but I had to stop because I felt like I was overheating and cold water would make my heart race even more. At this point, I would even get borderline psychotic. At the worst, I thought I somehow poisoned my whole family with lead by accident. Some things that barely made me worry on the normal state would make me panic extremely in withdrawal since it just seemed so real. However, I stopped worrying or caring about things like COVID-19 or some girl texting me back because all of these things were absolutely irrelevant compared to just getting through the withdrawal. I thought I would give up anything or even cut off one of my fingers if it would make the withdrawal go away. This Saturday, my brother was visiting and I told him I was in withdrawal just in case I get seizures. I think Sunday, 1am to 3am, was the worst. The withdrawal wasn't getting worse, but I thought I couldn't take it anymore. 
I felt extremely restless and asked my brother if he could call a doctor or the ambulance while walking like crazy up and down in the room. At about 2am we decided to take a walk and I was just walking extremely fast for about an hour. I couldn't stand still. During this walk I had horrifying thoughts and felt extremely hopeless. I thought if this wouldn't get better soon I had no other options than committing suicide since I couldn't take any more of it. It felt so real and I was terrified thinking about how my suicide would affect others and that I didn't want to die yet. I just couldn't take feeling that way. After the walk at 3am, I took 0.5 milligrams of Xanax, which didn't do much. But that, in combination with the exhaustion from the walk, enabled me to sleep a bit during the next night, during which the dreams were somewhat less vivid and terrifying. I also tried to drink something with sugar just to get some energy, but it was extremely difficult to drink anything and pretty much impossible to eat. Over the weekend, I ate about two bananas. During this night, the visual hallucinations were much weaker, but I started to have some random jerky body movement about once an hour. My arm would just jerk, or I would even suddenly just say ah for a second and didn't really have control over it. I kept having these jerky movements for about the next 36 hours, which I spent almost exclusively lying in bed and doing nothing, since everything was just extremely overstimulating. I couldn't look at my phone and answer text messages because I was too anxious to do that, so I just lied in bed, 90% of the time awake, and at about 4pm on Sunday I felt similar to 3am after I took the Xanax. It made me happy that the withdrawal reduced so much in just 13 hours and I got more hopeful I could make it alive. On Monday I could even talk with other people in my family, even though it was still very overstimulating and I would just get really anxious and sweaty after 30 minutes and I had to go back to my room again. On the night from Monday to Tuesday, I took 0.75 milligrams of Xanax, which surprisingly killed the withdrawal completely for about 5 hours, but I was just annoyed that I wasn't tired and wasted these 5 hours without getting any sleep. The withdrawal came back mildly in the morning, at which point it was just annoying. I would just sleep until the late afternoon, still waking up every hour or so, but it was much easier to sleep. Fast forward to 3am on Wednesday, at which point I'm writing this report and I feel almost normal again. I just got a light wave during writing it, but nothing that bothered me. I think I should be pretty much back to normal within 1-2 to two days, maybe just feeling slightly off for a few days, but I'm glad I got through this. I never want to use benzos again after this experience, I just think they are too addictive for me and I would always lose control over it. I just never want to experience such a withdrawal or even worse withdrawal again, and I don't wish that kind of withdrawal on anyone. I took about 2mg daily towards the end, which would probably be like 10mg of Xanax, and I consider myself pretty lucky that I didn't have a seizure, since other people reported they got seizures from this particular benzo. And as I said, please don't do it like me, go to a clinic or at least taper off. I myself was scared that I would just die from a seizure in my bedroom, and this is how my life would end. Last year, a few friends and I scored an awesome summertime job at an old-fashioned ice cream parlor. We had applied because of the many prospective benefits the job offered, working with friends, getting tips, and of course, free ice cream. Once we began working, however, we discovered an additional advantage that we hadn't counted on, whipped cream cans, lots of whipped cream cans. I had never tried nitrous before, it had always seemed kind of childish to me compared to acid or shrooms, but my friend Tina reassured me that the high would only last a few seconds, and after hearing her talk about the effects, I agreed to try it. So after closing that first night, Tina and I each snuck a full can into the bathroom and huffed together. 
At first, I felt nothing, and I started to cross my eyes at Tina to tell her how stupid I thought we were being. And then it hit me. Tingling, numbing sensation shot up and down my entire body, and I was hit by an incredible rush of the most intense euphoria I have ever experienced. My vision began to blur and black dots danced madly before my eyes. The intensity quickly peaked, at which point my vision went completely black and my body completely numb. The rush then subsided as quickly as it had come. It truly only lasted 10 or 15 seconds. The euphoria lasted an additional 15 minutes or so. We couldn't stop laughing as we were cleaning up. I instantly loved it, but was worried about killing off my brain cells. But Tina claimed that nitrous was a safe drug because it supposedly didn't last long enough to cause any damage. So we decided to share our experience with our other friends and the whipped cream spread like an epidemic. Before long, almost everybody who worked there, mostly high school kids like us, was huffing nitrous all the time. The dangers began when we discovered that we could put two cans in our mouth and huff them both at the same time. This was extremely fun, but we didn't do it very often because we were afraid that the boss would notice how many cans were missing. So most of the time, we settled for one can each per night. One night, however, our boss was exhausted and went home early, leaving me and Tina, our coworker Rebecca, and our manager Kevin to close up the store. Kevin went outside to take a cigarette break and Tina took four cans of whipped cream out of the fridge, two for me and two for her. Rebecca is straight edge, but she's open-minded and doesn't care if we do things in front of her. I had a really bad headache that day, so I told Tina that I didn't want to huff. At first, she looked disappointed, but then she grinned and said, well, I'll just do some cans for both of you guys, and took out two more cans. That's when things got really scary. Rebecca and I watched as Tina lined up all six cans on the counter and proceeded to huff them two by two. As she finished off the last two, she smiled up at us and started to say something. All of a sudden, her face went ashen and she started shaking violently. Rebecca and I were both alarmed and kept asking her if she was okay, and she fell to the floor, her entire body going still. It wasn't exactly like she had passed out. She was just sitting down on the floor, huddled up in a ball and not moving, her eyes wide and horrified, staring at nothing. I panicked and didn't know what to do, so I just stood there looking down at her, scared to death that she was going to faint and maybe die. Her eyes suddenly closed and her lips started to turn bright blue. At this point, Rebecca ran to the phone and started to dial 911. But before she did, I saw Tina's eyes open and her body relax. I helped her stand up, but she was incredibly shaken and had to hold on to the counter to keep herself upright. Later, Tina told us that things had just gotten way too intense and that she'd had a sudden and unexpected out-of-body experience, but she wouldn't say anything more about it. From my perspective, she had simply collapsed and stopped breathing. Tina didn't touch another can for the remainder of the summer. I still occasionally would with other friends, but never more than one at a time, and never without remembering the sickening image of Tina's bright blue suffocating lips. Please, if you're going to do nitrous or any other substance for that matter, be careful. Yes, it can be fun, but as we've all heard, too much of a good thing can be disastrous. No drug is safe in excess or if it is taken to an extreme. Your body and your mind have limits, obey them peace and happy tripping.